Hi everyone, it's uh, lovely to be with you at uh, Warrigal Anglican. Uh, Nat and I go um, a little bit, little bit way back with Sven and Tracy, so it's uh, I was very much looking forward to coming in person to the church, but uh, this is the next best thing in this strange and unsettling year. Uh, the passage I'd like to expand for us today is from Psalms, uh, it's the first Psalm, Psalm 1. And uh, the lovely thing about the Psalms is that they're poetry. Now I say to students at Ridley College um, a couple of things about uh, the Bible as literature. I ask them, have they read a poem in the last year and have they written a novel? And I reckon uh, those two things set you up well to study the Bible effectively uh, because a lot of the Bible is a narrative like a novel or historical novel. And uh, quite a bit of the Bible, including the Psalms, are poetry. The great thing about poetry is that it, it addresses our wills, but it does that through our emotions. And uh, uh, poetry in our day might have rhyme and meter and other things like that. Poetry in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, uh, used parallelism, where one line repeats the uh, in, in different words the first line. And you'll see that as we go through Psalm 1. It also uses imagery, uh, which is really helpful because it's so memorable and as I said, it, it uh, addresses us deep down in our emotions. So I hope you like poetry. And if, if you don't, give it a go. Psalm 1 is a wonderful poem about the blessed life. As you can see from the first verse, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. So the, the topic of the psalm is how to live a blessed life. Some years ago, uh, I went along to a big conference uh, called Happiness and Its Causes. Uh, happiness uh, is a side of psychology that they've only looked at in the last few decades. In the past, psychology concentrated on pathology, uh, how to help people who are living with various difficulties and whose lives have come off the rails. Positive psychology is uh, a, a stream of psychology that looks at how people are succeeding, those people who are living fulfilled and fruitful lives. What are they doing? What are the things that uh, marks them out? as different and can we learn something from studying them? Many Christian friends at the time said to me, oh, why would you be interested in happiness? Uh, the Bible's not interested in happiness, is it? Well, the word blessed actually has happiness in it, if you like. Uh, blessing is more, but it's certainly not less than happiness. And the notion of joy is also in there. As it turns out, uh, the happiness movement, uh, positive psychology, uh, isn't as shallow as you might think. It, it looks at things like uh, thankfulness and contentment and relational connection with other people. They're the kinds of things that really make a blessed life, according to popular psychology. Uh, just to give you a little overview, Psalm 1 teaches that the joyful condition of blessedness is derived from the pleasure and confidence of living a fruitful life under God's watchful care. Let's have a look at the psalm itself. Verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So how to live a blessed life? The first lesson is a simple one. Don't live like an unbeliever. There's a kind of ascending intensity as you go through the different lines in this first verse. Both the actions and the descriptions of the people have this in common. So living like people who do not trust in God, those people are described as the wicked, as sinners, 
and as mockers. The wicked are those who act against God's will. Sinners are those who disobey God. And then mockers is really the worst description, those who even scorn God. And harmful advice uh, in the first part of verse 1 grows into an outright opposition to God through walking, standing, and then finally sitting in the company of mockers, having this kind of settled identification with those who oppose God, taking the place of participating in their deliberations. Uh, Walk, stand and sit imagery are kind of three degrees of departure from God and conforming to the world. First of all, walking is accepting the advice of those who oppose God. Uh, Standing is uh, taking a party in its ways. And thirdly, sitting is adopting its attitude. If we were to say this literally, we could just say that bad company will corrupt good character, which is actually what it says in the New Testament, quoting a first century philosopher. But I love the power of figurative language. It's much more memorable, isn't it? And moving to hear the warning, not to walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So taking spiritual guidance, friends, from the world of unbelievers instead of from God will gradually lead to joining them. That's the message of Psalm 1 verse 1. So what might some examples of thinking and acting like those who don't have faith in God look like? Well, I remember the advice, uh, the little acronym you sometimes see on social media, uh, you only live once, Y-O-L-O. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, You only live once is really an encouragement to do something self-indulgent, at least at its worst it is, uh, to do something purely out of self-interest. Um, what does the Bible make of that advice? Well, uh, there's a sense in which in, a book, in the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, it says to accept all the good things that God gives us and to enjoy them as gifts from him. It also tells us Y-O-D-O, which is uh, you only die once and then comes the judgment, it says in Hebrews 9.27. The world might say life consists of food and clothing, a kind of materialistic worldview, again, looking to indulge ourselves and to live for the present only. Uh, The Bible says that we should define ourselves exclusively somewhere else by the fact that we are children of God and part of the family of God. To define ourselves by our possessions is uh, a very uh, faulty way of thinking about ourselves. The world might say that you should satisfy your desires and that's the path to authenticity and being true to yourself. Again, there's some truth to living true to yourself, to your character, but you need to find your identity not in your possessions or even in your desires, but in what God makes of us. The alternative then is to be guided by something else. Now, that something else is brought to us at the beginning of verse 2. We are to meditate and delight in God's word all the time. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, blessing comes to these people, and who meditates on his law day and night. Now, this is kind of a good news verse for Warrigal Anglican, because in a church like yours, uh, you regularly hear Bible teaching from excellent Bible teachers like Tracy Lawson. And uh, at Ridley College, again, we have the advantage of um, having uh, 
our main activity is centered around the Bible. But notice the two verbs in this verse. It says that we're to delight in uh, God's word. It is to open the way, and that's the, the, the way to open uh, ourselves to a full and healthy life in God's presence. We're to meditate all the time. Only then will we be able to resist being caught up in the desires of the world. Now, you'd think uh, being a lecturer at Ridley College or a student at Ridley College, it's kind of built into the curriculum. You'll always be meditating and delighting in God's word. So you're just fine on this score. Uh, But the truth is we don't test or teach meditation or delighting. Hopefully we model it to some extent, but it's certainly possible to know a lot about the Bible and not to meditate and delight in it. You can risk, uh, you could even do a four-year full-time study at college and not meditate and delight in God's word. Meditating and delighting in God's word is about taking it to heart and heeding it heeding its advice. So delighting in it, as Psalm 19 puts it, is to see it as sweeter than honey, as more valuable than gold or silver. So in verse 2, we have a description of the person for whom the word of God has captured their full affection. They delight in God's word and has claimed their full attention. They meditate day and night on God's word. And that affection and attention to God's word results in hearing and heeding its counsel and its instruction for how to live and resisting the advice and example of the ungodly. So, down to verse 3. Living this way, delighting in and meditating on God's word, leads to a fruitful life. Verse 3. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. We have a lovely simile here, a word picture, which compares the person who follows God's word to a a full and flourishing tree. It does say not in every season though, doesn't it? And uh, it'd be possible to think that the psalm is saying that only in certain seasons will we yield fruit, but I think that's pushing the metaphor or the simile too far. Uh, It speaks of a successful life. So we need to measure that and uh, define it as well, because certainly following God's word does not lead to a smooth and carefree life. And uh, I don't need to tell you that this year, which has been the the most difficult year for our planet, if you like, in the last 50, with the terrible pandemic taking hold and the restrictions in place. My own emotional life has gone from disappointment initially at the cancelled events that I was looking forward to and then to some anxiety as I wondered about whether I would get sick, whether I'd lose my job and other things that were in the news. And finally, the temptation even to despair as we wait for the, uh, the pandemic to be brought under control and finally eliminated. So what we have here then is... An an attractive image uh, of um, a beautiful tree bearing fruit, its leaves do not wither, and whatever it does prospers. This kind of image would be what any positive psychologist or happiness conference would embrace very happily. Such lives, this is saying, 
will produce lasting value. So if we were to say this just literally and not using this figurative poetic language, we'd say that uh, studying God's word and obeying it will lead to producing a life of lasting value. But it's a much more uh, powerful thing, isn't it, friends, to hear that we could be compared to a tree planted by streams of water. I don't know where that takes your mind, uh, but for me, it, it, it takes my mind to uh, some beautiful streams and rivers I've uh, camped next to uh, when I've had the opportunity to go on holidays. Now, the psalm is very good at contrasting the alternative to living this way. And in verse 4, we get another strong alternative, as we'll see in a moment. Not so the wicked. Uh, the psalm paints just two kinds of lives, two ways to live, if you like those who trust and obey God, and those who don't. And here, friends, is the great divide in humanity. It's very easy for us to think of humanity as divided between rich and poor, between one race and another, between city and country. Uh, but the truth is, the greatest divide in humanity is not between the high flyers and the strugglers, uh, between the Collingwood fans and the rest, uh, between the rich and poor, one race and another, between men and women, between Melbourneites and Sydney-siders, uh, between people who like to holiday at the beach and those who like to holiday with mountains. There are only two kinds of people, our psalm tells us, and the whole psalm makes this very clear. It's between those who meditate on and delight in God's word and those who take the counsel of those who oppose God. And with the latter group, verses four and following tell us that that kind of life has no future with God. Have a look at verse four. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. So literally, again, we could say that God declares the impermanence of the ungodly. But instead, uh, this beautiful poem describes the wicked as chaff. And it's a very terse statement that opens verse 4, isn't it? Not so the wicked. The blessings that accrue to the godly life do not come anywhere near those who are ungodly. Uh, if, you, if you're ungodly, then this psalm tells us there is no special providence for you. Uh, where will you run in the day of trouble? To whom will you turn for help in the day of God's wrath? Where is your shield? in the hour of the battle, to use some of the other imagery from the Psalms. Rather, the ungodly are like worthless, wind-driven chaff. Chaff is connected with one of the most valuable items in the ancient world, and still in our day, one of the most valuable items on the planet, namely wheat. Uh, chaff is the husk that houses the wheat, and it's neither living nor fruitful nor nutritious. It is fit only to be removed by the winnowing process and then scattered to the four winds and burned. So in the ancient world and uh, still to some extent in our day, when you have your wheat harvest, you crush the wheat and the, the chaff is left to blow away. So the contrast here is a very stark one in verse three between a well-planted and fruitful tree and in verse four between uh, uh, chaff is the only alternative. So you can either be a well-watered tree or wind-blown chaff, a stark and emotionally gripping image, I'm sure you agree. You can either be rootless, 
fruitless and lifeless or well-watered and bearing fruit. And chaff here describes the spiritual existence of the ungodly. Verse 5 then says that therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Notice again, the as I mentioned at the beginning, in an ancient Hebrew poem, you have the two halves of the sentence uh, repeating each other in different terms. And what this is saying is that the ungodly will be condemned at the final judgment. They will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. In verse 1, the godly uh, person has to go it alone. Blessed is the person who does not stand and so on. But now that individual in verse 1 has the companionship in the fellowship of the righteous. Uh, And there are indeed two ways and only two ways to live. Or rather, there's one way to live, a life before God, a fruitful life of lasting value, and there's the life which rejects God's word and will lead ultimately, our psalm says, to destruction. Uh, Indeed, verse 6 says that a life lived under God's watchful care is the very definition of joyful blessing. Verse 6, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The Lord knows the way of the righteous is literally what it says. Our uh, version, the NIV says, watches over. I think that's a good translation here. The blessedness is not so much being known by God in the sense that he knows exactly where we are and he's always with us. But here, the Hebrew concept of to know is somewhat different from Western thought. Uh, in, in, In our parlance, the way we talk about knowledge, it's much more cognitive knowledge, scientific knowledge. Uh, In the Old Testament and in the New, there's a wider meaning for knowledge which has to do with intimate knowing, relationship and fellowship. Think back to the book of Genesis uh, where sexual activity is described as Adam knowing Eve. God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In verse 3, the righteous prosper. In verse 6, the wicked perish. The imagery really packs a punch, doesn't it? Interestingly, the, the author leaves unexpressed certain parts of what he's saying. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, therefore it will last. It will have a permanence. The Lord knows, uh, does not know the way of the wicked, therefore it will perish. So only half of the antithesis, if you like, is stated in each clause. And this heightens the contrast as we complete it for ourselves. Sometimes a gap in a poem can really pack a punch. Those whose way of life leads to destruction and those who live a joyful life of obedience to God's word and a fruitful life in confidence of his watchful care. That's really the psalm's definition of blessing. Now, don't get me wrong. The psalm is not saying that everything will go well for you if you meditate in and delight in God's word. Far from it. Psalms 2 and 3, and as you proceed through the rest of the psalms, make it very clear that the righteous will experience various uh, um, uh, difficulties and hardship and even enemies. But still, what we have here is the contrast between being known intimately and personally by God and not being known. Reminds me of Jesus who says at the last judgment, 
uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, I never knew you, is his way of describing those who will perish. So friends, do you want to live a happy life, one of true and lasting joy, even in the midst of troubles? Do you want to live a blessed life? That's what the Psalm's describing. The secret ingredient of a blessed and joyful life is to delight and meditate in God's word. Now, this may uh, sound like a bit of a guilt trip because all of us could probably do better in terms of our engagement with God's word in the Bible. Uh, And certainly it's not a guilt trip. Psalm 1 is rather a really positive encouragement for each of us to recommit ourselves to reading God's word and to hearing God's word uh, each week in our small groups and in our church services. I thought I'd give you just my one tip and uh, one recommendation for Bible reading just to close. My one tip for Bible reading is a very simple one. Rather than starting at the beginning of the Bible and going all the way through, which uh, many people try, but they get stuck when they get to the second half of Exodus where the tabernacle is described in in great detail. And then in Leviticus, you get the sacrifices again, which uh, can be pretty hard going. What, What I recommend is this. You take a piece of paper, and uh, you divide it into three. So you end up with three bookmarks. And what I do is I put one bookmark in the Old Testament, one bookmark in the Psalms, because the Psalms beautifully speak for us and and are an encouragement for our prayer life, and one bookmark in the New Testament. And then each day when I read the Bible, I just go where my fancy takes me, if you like. So if I'm getting stuck with my Old Testament reading, I'll have a break and go to the New Testament. And I make sure every week I'm reading some of the Psalms as an encouragement to my prayer life. Psalm 1 promises something something to those who resist conformity to the world and delight and meditate on God's word. It promises a joyful condition derived from the pleasure and confidence of living a fruitful life under God's watchful care. So I hope, friends, that's an encouragement to you in this really difficult season of life, 2020, uh, that uh, you would return to God's word and find in it delight, meditate on it, with the great promise of living a fruitful life, one that will exist into eternity, under God's watchful care in the presence, in the present. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are a stronghold in the day of trouble. You know those who take refuge in you, as it says in the book of Zephaniah. Uh, We do pray, Lord, that each of us would find comfort and be cheered by the notion that when we meditate and delight in your word, you make our lives fruitful, make them count for the future, and you watch over us and care for us in the present. Uh, Please help us to encourage each other to maintain connection and community during this strange time when we can only meet uh, virtually. Uh, Thank you for the uh, technology that makes this possible. And thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ at Warrigal Anglican. Uh, We do pray that we would bear one another's burdens and bear our own burdens as well. 
as it says in Galatians chapter 6. Uh, thank you, Lord, for all the good things you give us. Uh, help us to look out for one another, to cast our anxieties on you, knowing that you do care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.